Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. With your host, Dapper Data. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion with your host, Dapper Data, as usual. Um, I want to thank my audience for tuning in today. Uh, as, as you all know, I am all about educating, education, 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 educating the audience on data and how valuable it is to everyone. I want the audience to understand that data is really a necessity, right? And everything else around it is just really perks. And so, what I want to do is really help you understand today that ingesting data, knowledge sharing, data governance and compliance and all the security mechanisms around data, that's all very important. And so that's what I really want to highlight today. And today, so I brought I brought a special guest on. His name is Randy Gordon. Say what's up, Randy. Say hi, Randy. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> so I met Randy on LinkedIn, and really what I want to do is, before I get into introdu- in introducing Randy, I really want to talk about how I, I really truly believe that encouraging and encouraging people to get on LinkedIn and to other social media platforms to be able to uh, make those networking and, and, and make that connection right with people, because this is how we met. And so uh, Randy is a subject matter expert in data governance data operations, credit risk, regulatory reporting, all that good stuff, all the buzzwords that you hear, right? Yeah. But, but, he, but he, he is really, really, really sharp at this and has a really great background at this. And he's led the way as an innovator and thought leader in the data industry, focusing on being a data steward and governing your data um, in the finance industry specific, specifically. And so I, uh, another tidbit is that I cannot wait for you to hear this person, Randy Gordon, talk about how he puts a unique twist mm-hmm. on data governance related to music. So that's going to be exciting. So Randy, Randy, tell them about yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dapper Data. I really appreciate you having me here. I really enjoyed your podcast. So yes, I, I do come from a financial background for the last, well, 10 years really in data governance. And I, I've been with financial services for most of my working life. Although as you mentioned, I actually started out as a musician. That's what I went to college for. When I graduated, that was all I was going to do was being be a professional classical musician, a cellist. I play cello. <laughs> uh, when I got out, I found out I didn't really enjoy doing it as a full-time occupation mm-hmm. because I didn't really have any control. I had to take any gig that came along because none of them paid too well. And I felt after a while, boy, this is no fun anymore. And I really thought this would be fun. So I ended up getting a day job originally in insurance. And that allowed me to play professionally for many years. I I, I played weekends and evenings until we had our daughter and she got old enough where I didn't want to give up my weekends and evenings anymore. (laughs) I haven't really played too much lately professionally, but it was a really good balance. And as I said, I started insurance. on the business side, started getting involved with data. During that period, I worked in a data quality department for claims, health insurance claims. Mm-hmm. I went to the financial industry back, it was a while ago, late 90s. And I worked for Merrill Lynch for many years and that's where I got into credit risk. And in credit risk, I worked in project management, writer reporting and in data management. And it was at Bank of America where I joined when Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch. That's where I really learned the data governance trade because that was right after the financial crisis. And the regulators put a lot of pressure on the banks to get their act together as far as data. Especially because during the crisis, when say Lehman Brothers was falling apart and the regulators were asking, how much exposure do you have to Lehman Brothers? Most of the banks really couldn't give a good answer Mm-hmm. because they really didn't have their data under control. Right, right. So I, I learned a lot at Bank of America, and I went on to move over to Moody's, the rating agency. Mm-hmm. And at Moody's, I, I built their data governance program, really basing things on what I did at Bank of America. 
And I also managed several operational groups, including a master data management operations group and the group that actually extracted the financial data our analysts used to rate our, our customers. Then I left Moody's last fall and mm -hmm. I did some thinking about what I would want to do next. And I did a lot of thinking about data governance, out of which came a series of articles and some presentations I've done. Currently, I'm consulting. I work for a company called Dysis, and I'm consulting for another large global bank and, 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 and working on their data governance program. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is a really fascinating, exciting time, actually, to be in data governance. Yeah. And it, as I'll talk a bit later, I, I didn't necessarily feel that way when I left Moody's, because I, I was starting to wonder whether data governance was just outmoded. Mm -hmm. I've, learned, I've learned differently. I, I, I've, I've been looking at it differently. I think it's actually a really exciting place to be. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that's very interesting, Randy. And as we talked, we, we highlighted a little earlier, you know, we were talking about how data governance has really played an important part and transitioning over to things like teleworking, right? Mm -hmm. It's been very important to understand what data governance is because uh, people throw it out there a lot, right? Not really understanding what data governance is, compliance, regulation, those things are, right? And I and I have to deal with it a lot. I mean, in my industry, uh, well, in, my, in the part of my industry, uh, dealing with object storage or dealing with mm -hmm. archiving and things like that, um, I, I've really had to deal with regulatory uh, compliance, right? I had to deal with those regulations. I had to deal with data governance and, and really educating the customer on um, what data governance is, you know? And, and so I want to know really um, if you could explain what you what, what your take on data governance is, right? You know, how do you feel um, as far as defining what that data governance is? Sure. So I, I've been fortunate enough this summer to be participating, to be a student in the Chief Data Officer Summer School, this virtual mm -hmm. set of classes run by Caroline Carruthers and Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. They're both from the UK. And uh, they have a lot of really fascinating ideas about data management, data governance, CDS. I liked what they said about data governance. That it's essentially the rules you need when you're playing the game. So, <laughs> and therefore, if you don't have rules, the game's no fun. And, and if it's a game like rugby or something like that, it could be dangerous, right? Right, so, right. Or the Wild Wild West, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like football. Yeah, if there's no yeah. rules, people can get hurt. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I like that because that that puts a positive spin. I, I think sometimes when people hear the word data governance, they think of just someone who's just saying no all the time. You can't do this. You can't do that. <laughs> And, and I, I don't think that's actually the case. I think, I think it does provide a structure that allows you to work with data, especially work with data with other people. I mean, yeah. if you are just yourself working with some data, you, you, you don't really need to worry about governance. But as soon as you're working with other people, you have to look at rules around, well, who can see what, right? There might be some data I'm working with that these other people can't see. You have to think about privacy. You have to make sure that people have a common understanding of the data. So that gets to definitions, that gets to metadata. Yeah. You want to make it clear to everybody where the data is coming from. So it gets the data lineage. So, so to me, what data governance is really about, all about is creating a structure that allows people to work together with data. Now, that's a great point. Um, and and I started to um, went in in my during my time of really educating the customer, uh, just to add to what you're saying, you know, it it provides a lot of value when you really govern your data, right? I mean, bad data uh, really, if you if you if you have bad data governance, you know, it can be risky, right? Yes. With your organization, and so a uh, lack of having effective data governance is a securities concern. And there's uh, certain reasons why, right? Because outside of security risks associated with dirty unstructured data, and then you can have uh, regulatory compliance issues and all that good stuff. Um, well, not really good stuff, right? Bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I've seen that it actually saves money because, yes. you know, it seems like uh, if you're able to save some time, Right, then money is saved. Right, <laughs> so that's a that's a great point that you made. You know, 
Um, as far as uh, being able to success successfully govern your data, um, I've seen that many people have had uh, different steps to doing that. And uh, they take, you know, a sort of a structured approach, right? Because you need to have structure when you're talking about data management and being able to organize your data from end to end. I mean, in the beginning, I talked about uh, ingesting your data, knowledge management, but securing your data, making sure it's compliant and all that good stuff, uh, making sure it meets all the regulations you need and all that stuff. And also at the end of the day, providing value to the customer. And some of the steps that that I've seen are things like you know get get a get a governor right <laughs> you know you have you have basically you have to have somebody to govern the data you know and and the right people in place to do that uh, you have to survey the situation in place being able to uh, calculate the value of your data like how important is the data that you have is it accurate is it inaccurate you know uh, so it's so many different pieces of the puzzle you know uh, but but. But talk to me a little bit or talk to the audience a little bit about some of the steps that you have taken to successfully govern data from in the end. Sure. I think personally, if you're starting a data governance program or introducing data governance, first of all, you, you, you need to look at what the business priorities are mm -hmm. and, and what data means to those priorities because you can't govern everything at once. I think that's right. where data governance often goes wrong, right? Uh, we're, we're going to set up rules and structure for every bit of data <laughs> in the company or the organization. Forget it. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's huge. So, so you have to take a look and say, okay, what are the priorities from a business standpoint? You've, you've right. got some compliance, you've got regulatory, of course, but you've also got some revenue-driven objectives that are that can be fueled by data. There might be all kinds of things you want to do with data. You want to improve your analytics. So when you look at that, you say, okay, so let, let's parse out what our priorities are. And I, I, I remember doing this, for example, at Moody's and it worked well. And then say, okay, that, that's what we want to focus on. So let's build our structure around that. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think it's good to have a central organization at first with data governance. I've seen models where it's very decentralized, but if you're starting new, it's better to have a, a, a group doesn't have to be a huge team, but a group that's central and, and can help coordinate the rollout. And, and based on what those priorities are, that will drive, okay, what kinds of standards are important from a data standpoint for that mm. set of data? How can we identify within that set what the critical data elements are? We always talk about that in data governance, because again, you can't govern everything. You wanna focus in on those specific elements that have the most impact, Right. whether it's important to regulators, whether it's what our analysts really need the most in order to run their models. So, and then, and then you start saying, okay, who are the people that from the business side really know that data who can help us make sure that there's strong business definitions so everybody right. can understand what this data actually means and what are the requirements for quality? It's not always clear cut, right? Some, mm -hmm areas may need data that's near perfect because they're running some models and a little bit of variance throws everything off. Um, others can have more tolerance because they're, they're more interested in seeing data quickly. Yeah. That, and, and, and often I know that, you know, if, if you're a data scientist, you want to see a lot of data quickly and you don't want to, spend, you don't, you don't want to have it all held up for scrubbing, right? Right. So right. There's a concept of, of fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. There's a concept of the context of the use of data. It's really important to understand that and not make determinations without understanding that on what's quality data. Um, it really, you really do need to understand the business aspects. But, but I, I really find starting with what the priorities are and then building out your plan from there um, it, it is the way to start successfully. And then always have your eye on, okay, I've set up a structure, I've set up standards, now I can start expanding out to other areas and take this as a model. Oh, that's a that's a great point. And something you, it, I guess it just hit it hit home for me was that uh, you know when I talked about calculating the value of your data, um, it's it's valuable in different in different ways to different people, right? <laughs> I mean, when you just said that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so that just helped me realize that you don't you don't really want to get rid of your data, right? It's just uh, really cleaning it up, making sure that what is presented to the stakeholder 
is the right is the right thing that's presented to them, right? You know, exactly. So that's exactly. I mean, that, yeah, that's important. It is, and and I, I learned a lot from working at Moody's because Moody's is a rating agency, but it's also a data producer. People buy subscriptions to Moody's data, right? And they use it for all kinds of things. Banks use it to run their models and their collateral and their trading. And so when we would look at data there, we were always looking at it from multiple perspectives, right? Some people were concerned about it from a regulatory perspective because they had to run the reports for regulators. The people that were designing new data products looked at it from a marketing standpoint. You know, what, what do my customers want? What can what data can I put together to create new products? The analysts were using it in their models. So they were looking at it from, you know, I, I need to make sure these elements are really high quality because my model is so sensitive to them. Right. And, and so that kind of multiple perspectives that I encountered there, there I, I really like that. And I think that, that is, that's why one size doesn't fit all. And you just can't regiment your your data governance according to one set of rules it just doesn't work no that's a great point that's a great point randy and 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 so i want to really highlight i know we we just started talking about uh how when you are analyzing the data or when you are cleaning up the data and you're governing the data uh you need to make sure that it is um uh, specific to the individual on the other end that really cares about a certain mm -hmm. you know specific things within the data um but you know, taking a step back, uh, looking at different industries, right? Uh, you have a you have been in the financial industry for a, a, a good amount of time. Maybe most of your career is really around financial industry and um, you know data governance, right? It has to have some focus in. It has to actually have some some things that are highlighted that are different from other industries. Right, that that are different and and that are really honing in on the financial industry uh, when it comes down to data governance. And so the way I see it is that data governance really helps organizations and financial services understand their data a lot more than people think. Right. And uh, I mean, I always talk about data science in the financial industry. I was just talking to you earlier about how I wanted to uh, really isolate my data science services and uh, my skill set to di three different areas. Uh, one of them being finance, because mm -hmm. finance is big from a data science perspective, but uh, just diving deeper into it from a data um, a data governance perspective, uh, what what is the need for data government governance in the financial industry? Is it a big need? It, it certainly is, and I and I think really financial institutions are only beginning to get an idea of the true value of their data and data governance because again, originally data governance really sprang up to its own because of the regulatory requirements on the financial institutions after the the financial crisis mm -hmm. and, and so a lot of time has been spent within the banks making sure that the regulators can get that level of quality the regulators are satisfied with the controls that are in place from a data standpoint mm -hmm. i don't think financial institutions have started to look at, gee, how can this also help us exploit this data for mm -hmm. products, for marketing, for new revenue streams, for and, and especially for different types of analysis because the focus was so strongly on, reg on regulatory requirements. So I think it's interesting and I think now banks and, and other financial institutions are starting to think about what else can we do with this data, especially because they're trying to keep up with the smaller companies like fintechs. Yeah. Fintechs don't have to worry about regulation in a lot of cases. And I think banks have been really working hard to keep up with that. And, and a lot of that, a lot of what fintechs do well is exploit data. Mm. So I think, I think there in the financial institutions, there's a lot of growth opportunities to think about data monetization and data exploitation. And, and, and still, obviously, you still have to satisfy the regulatory aspect. I think what's interesting too, when we were talking about the impact of the privacy regulations, I, I think again, 10 years ago, we used to sit in these uh, data governance meetings with other banking and financial service people. And it's like, oh man, you know, it would be great to be in another industry and not worry so much about regulation. With right. the privacy regulations, right? You've got the European one, the GDPR, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got the new one in California and there's, there are going to be more and more of these. I mean, everyone needs to think about the rules and regulations around handling people's data. I think that's good personally. I think it's good for us as individuals, but that's something that people need to really think about uh, a lot from a governance standpoint is making sure that, again, you you understand the data you have, you've got it defined correctly, you're tracking it. Let's say you've got a customer who says, I want to exercise, exercise my right to be forgotten. That's yeah. one of the rights under the GDPR. How are you going to do that if you don't know where you have that person's data? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You know, it's essential to protecting the data and, and to help comply with the gov with many of the government and industry regulations that you have out there. Um, right. That's a great point, you know. And uh, so this is the moment that, I mean, I know I've been waiting for, you know, but I don't know about the audience. Uh, uh, so... I really want to hear your story and 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 your discussion on and I've I've read um well I've listened to your discussion on Bright Talk uh, about uh, data science and music and and really I really want to understand how well data governance and music sorry but I really want to understand how um how the theory the theory behind data governance and the connection with music kind of mesh together right. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about that. You know, I'm excited about that one. Sure, thanks. So, as I as I mentioned last fall, after I left Moody's, I was really having second thoughts about the relevance of data governance, at least the way I had practiced it, and most of my peers had practiced it, because it seemed to me there were two things. One. There's so much data now. You've seen the statistics of how many gazillions of gigabytes are being created every day. And there's so many different types of data that are really important to look at. You think about from a COVID pandemic standpoint, we've been looking at all this data captured on through the Internet of Things, right, on our personal devices and tracking people's movements and all that. So most of the traditional data governance thinking was based on relational databases. Relational databases are just part of the picture now. And then the other thing was, I, I saw what was happening in the software development world. Agile was one thing, but then we were getting into DevOps and that whole approach with the Facebooks and Amazons and Googles of going from coding to delivery, right? Continuous integration, continuous delivery in a matter of minutes. And that certainly didn't fit with the more deliberative approach that data governance followed. So. So I was thinking, what do I do next? I, I don't know if what I was doing has relevance anymore. Yeah. And I, I, I thought, well, first, may, maybe I need to frame this in terms of how do we get to where we are? And, and I was thinking about the history of data governance. And I found this article by this fellow, Winston Chen, a short history of data governance. And he postulated that there had been three eras of data governance, starting with the application era, which is basically I really care about this data for my particular application mm. to the enterprise repository era, which, which you know, I do remember when everybody was building your big data warehouses and we had master data management and, and we were businesses were realizing it, we, we should govern our data. We should, we should make sure we understand our data. We should try to centralize it. It was still very siloed mm. by repository to repository. And then again, along came the financial crisis and, that really drove what Winston Chen calls the policy era. Mm -hmm. And that's where you started to see these data governance organizations with their standards and their policies and all those roles and responsibilities, the data stewards and all. Mm -hmm. and, and that I think served us well until maybe recently. And as I said, I think with the proliferation and the variety of data, and the sheer speed of technology development, I just thought the policy era may be gone. I don't know if we can keep up with the policy era. <laughs> and, and it just seemed because you'd have to change your policies so quickly. You need to be more, ag you need more agile data governance. Mm -hmm. so, so I thought, gee, maybe we're entering a new age of data governance. I didn't really know how to approach that. So then I, I had read the book, The Phoenix Project, which is a, a, a story about a company that uses DevOps to 
to deliver software faster and avoid all kinds of technology disasters. <clears throat> and it was interesting, the authors of that book, as well as the people who were founding data ops, which I'll talk about more in a moment, people like Chris Berg from Data Kitchen, they all talked about this book called The Goal, G-O-A-L, by Eliyahu Goldratt and his book from the 80s. I never heard of it. They all talked about it as, as really inspirational to their thinking. So I thought, okay, I, I had some time on my hands, so I thought I'd read that book. And, and it's really interesting because Eliyahu Goldratt was a physicist. And what he did in, in a series of books and, and as a consultant was apply a scientific method to improving manufacturing. And a lot of the enhancements in manufacturing that saw the U.S. become competitive again, starting in the 80s, came out of his thinking. So the goal is, again, a story about a plant manager trying to save his plant. It's the 80s. Book's kind of dated. It can be sometimes kind of cringeworthy, you know, because it's from the 80s. But um, but still, the, the theme is the plant manager happens to run into his physics teacher, mm -hmm. which is really obviously the author. And the physics teacher says, so what's up? And the plant manager says, I got to find a way to keep my plant open. You know, we're failing on all of the financial measures. They're going to close us down. And the physicist said, well, what's the goal of your plant? And the plant manager says, well, to turn out product and to meet our quotas. And, and the physicist said, well, I don't think that's really what the goal of your plant is. So maybe <laughs> you should go back and rethink it and then come to me. And, and that's what he does. I'm not going to give away what the goal is because it's a good book. But what, what hit me was, well, because the plant manager comes back with an idea, a new way of looking at the goal of his plant, and that really starts him on a whole pathway to completely revamping how he does things. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, let's see. This physics approach won't work for me because I'm not a physicist, but I'm a musician. And maybe if I was to think about data governance from a musical standpoint, maybe that would give me some new way of looking at this. Mm. And so it was very odd because the moment I put my thoughts together, I had an inspiration. Mm -hmm. Literally, what popped into my head was The Art of the Fugue, which is a piece by J.S. Bach. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, it literally just popped into my head. And, and I hadn't thought about that piece in many years, probably since college. But I realized I thought about it because the first thing when I was thinking about what's the goal of data governance is it provides a structure. And I thought, well, yeah, structure for what? But I realized that the art of the fugue is a piece by, by J.S. Bach, one of the great composers who ever lived, wrote enormous amounts of music. And he was a master of this form, this musical form called a fugue. It's a very structured form. And what he did in Art of the Fugue was basically, in a way, kind of show off what you can do with this form. He wrote 16 fugues using the same tune, the same melody, and, and created all these different variants, really wildly variant, really fascinating. And I thought, wow, so there's an example of someone who worked within a structure to create something. Mm -hmm. and that, to me gave a different idea of what data governance was because all of a sudden it wasn't about just creating controls and saying no, right? Which is sort of the reputation I think data governance had. It's about creating the structure that allows you to be creative, allows you to invent. And that's really how it happened. And, and, and the funny thing was then I decided I was going to uh, write an article about this. I'd been working on some articles, my friend Bob Seiner Mm -hmm. who's a really great uh, data governance consultant and thinker. And he's got this newsletter called uh, the Data Administrator's Newsletter, tdm.com. He had asked me to write something. So I thought, I'm going to write about this. Um, I realized that I didn't really know actually that much about pukes. <laughs> <laughs> because when I went to music school, I, 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 was dead at, you know, I was going to be a performer, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I skipped out of as many classes about theory and structure as possible. 
Right. It wasn't really cool, right? To yeah, do it wasn't cool. Right? I, I was trying to practice, and you know, I was practicing six to eight hours a day, and I was playing in orchestras and chamber music, and 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 I mean, I love playing fugues because fugues are great because everyone's part is important. Um, but I really didn't know that much about them, so I started reading it. Now I thought I can play a little bit of the art of the fugue, if you like. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Let's see. And this is a performance by the Emerson String Quartet. So one of the funny things about Art of the Fugue is Bach didn't indicate what instruments should play this. There's four parts. Oh. Um, possibly that's because he died shortly after he wrote it. It wasn't the last piece he wrote, although there's like stories about it being the last piece because it seems to end unfinished. It wasn't quite the last thing he wrote, but he did not designate what instruments could play it. So. So you can hear recordings on keyboards, uh, piano, organ, but you can also hear recordings from just about every combination of instruments. And and I like the string quartet version because to me it's very clear which part is which. The, di the different instruments make it very clear, clearer than say when I hear it on an organ. Sometimes it's hard to make out those um, parts. But anyway, this recording is by the Emerson String Quartet, which which happens to be a group of musicians I know. Mm -hmm. Actually, I reached out to them when I did the Bright Talk. I said, are you okay with me? <laughs> you yeah, <see> right. <laughs> and, and, and they were, they were, because I, I didn't use the whole thing, so I didn't need to get rights. Um, but you can find it on uh, any, you can find a recording on any music service, and you can also find the recording on, on YouTube. It's kind of cool. There's a cool YouTube one where you see the music um, streaming. And so if you read music at all, it's fascinating. You can see the music as, as they play. I'm just going to play the beginning of this. Yeah. So I black rams and string quartet. They're they're awesome. So yeah, they are. I, I think when when people hear that, probably the first thing they say is, "Gee, there seems to be a lot going on. They're all playing different parts." Right, right. And, and that's what characterizes fugues and some other types of music from that period as well. Is this idea they, they there's different types of musical textures I think you could call um, there's the one that most music we listen to today is pretty simple in that there's one melody a tune right whatever the singer is singing or you know the lead uh, guitarist is playing and then there's some kind of a compliment accompaniment maybe some chords maybe something more elaborate but still it's pretty clear cut there's a melody and there's an accompaniment mm -hmm. what you just heard what a fugue is, is something called polyphonic music, where each voice has its own melody and they all fit together in a way that's very pleasing to the ear, but they're all independent voices. Uh, and, and I've often thought that this was the norm of uh, most music up until the time of Bach. So we're talking mid 1700s, late 1700s. And then we started to move toward more of this I call it homophonic. They call it homophonic, which is melody plus harmony. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, I think we're less sophisticated than we were. The Middle Ages, the church music was all very poly polyphonic. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what I think about when I think about data today is it's, it's a lot more polyphonic than homophonic because there's so much of it. There, it's coming from so many different sources. There's so many different types of data. And, and, we, if you're a data scientist, for example, you're trying to look for, if you're looking for various types of things, right? Correlations, you're looking for interesting things in all this data. Mm -hmm. and, and that's different, I think, than we used to look at data. I think we used to look at it through a very homophonic approach. We, we, we looked at maybe a report, right? And that was the melody. And then we'd look at what was behind the scenes. That was the harmony. And, right. and that doesn't really 
work and it doesn't really give you the value anymore. And so the thing is the difference between something structured like a fugue and just noise, which we would call cacophony, is sort of like what happens with data lakes often, right? Right. <laughs> Think about how data lakes become data swamps. Everybody dumps their data in, there's no governance, and pretty soon, you know, it's a swamp. It, 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 it's, it's, it's data cacophony, I think. And, and what we really need is, is sort of that polyphonic approach. So why does that work? Well, it works because a fugue has a structure. There's a governance framework for fugues. It's actually not that complicated. This, this was the revelation to me, actually, because I always thought fugues were really complicated. Um, <laughs> but it's not. There, there, there's three basic characteristics. I, you call them principles of a fugue. Mm -hmm. One, you start with a melody that's the subject of the fugue. I mean, you heard one instrument play that, and, and that's the way fugues always start, with a single melody, sometimes with accompaniment, sometimes uh, played solo, but still, it's got a subject. You can follow that subject all the way through the piece. The voices then enter an Im imitation. And if you listened carefully, you could hear the second voice came in with the subject. A little bit different, actually. But, but still, each voice comes in with the subject. And then the other principle around fugues is the voices are playing different parts together. It's a polyphonic kind of approach. And they're, they're staying within certain rules, so the rules of counterpoint in order to create harmony. That, that's, those are the three principles. And I thought about that from a data governance standpoint and thought, boy, sometimes our data governance framework just gets so complicated. But they, <laughs> these three principles. And then there's one more detailed rule, just one. And it has to do with the initial imitation, the second voice, which we call in fugue language and answer that has to come in on a different note. That's what makes it different from canon. I mean, row, row your, row, row, row your boat, Furusaka. Those are canons because each voice is exactly the same. Ah. Right? But a few, that first voice will come in on a different note. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the Baroque period, it was typically the fifth note of the scale. But it can be any other note, really. And, and by the way, Bach wasn't the last person to write fugues. Uh, Composers continue to write fugues, and there's even a fugue in a popular musical, Guys and Dolls. Oh, <laughs> you have to. <laughs> you, you know Guys and Dolls, and, and you know it starts out with the fugue for Tin Horns. Oh. That's a fugue. Yeah, the, the guy <laughs> who are talking about the horses they're going to bet on, that's a fugue. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out, well, what, what fugues right now that I can think of that, you know, that I've maybe experienced or something like that, you know. There, there, there are some in, in the musical world. I mean, Bernstein has something in West Side Story. You know, the, the, the run-up, the big battle is, is in many ways a fugue. Uh, I, I, I think, and I think some musicians still use that fugue approach, maybe not for a whole piece or a whole song, but it's there. Um, but anyway, so, so, that, so that's, that's the one sort of more detailed rule is that first, the second entrance of the subject will come in on a different note. Mm -hmm. and, and that drives creativity right there because then your composer has to think about, gee, what note do I need to change that subject to make it sound okay? So that yields all kinds of different ideas. Now, the art of the fugue is 16 fugues. That was just the first one. And each of oh. them are each of them use the same basic melody, the subject, but they do wildly different things. And that's what I mean by a structure actually providing the basis for creativity, for invention. I use that word rather than innovation because innovation everybody says, but invention to me is, is a little bit more meaningful because it gets to the exploring and the finding that you want to do with your data. Yeah. So so when I thought about this, I thought, well, that, that's, that's a really different goal. If you think about data governance providing the structure for invention, then that becomes something positive. That becomes something that's not all about control. You have to, you have to take care of the control aspects in order to allow people to be creative, right? You don't, you don't want a person worrying about, gosh, should I be using this data? Because maybe it's private data I shouldn't see. I mean, you want to remove that, right? So that's it, it's not that complying isn't important, but you're, you're looking at it from sort of a more positive standpoint. You, you, you're actually trying to enable people to use the data they have by, again, 
providing the rules and making sure that they can play safely, not get themselves in trouble, and they can really understand what they have in front of them and, and they can collaborate more easily, right? Because everybody uh, understands the data the same way. All those things become more positive. So, so, that, so that's why now I think data governance is really an exciting area because I think it can drive actually innovation and invention. And it's not just something that's there to say no. Yeah, yeah. No, that that was amazing, Randy. <laughs> that was amazing. You know, and and I, a couple of things I took from that. When you think about the art of Duke, I I I took, you know, when you mentioned that there are so many different parts, right, playing at one time. That's similar to when you're dealing with data governance. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there's so many different parts playing one time, but at the end of the day, they all work together yes. and create something beautiful. Right? Exactly. Something meaningful. Right. <laughs> and yeah. and so at a high level, if that, that's something really to take take uh take you know, take ownership of or, or or understand when you're dealing with that and the music, right? Or specifically the art of the few, you know, and, and they all come together, they have different notes, but at the end of the day they come together, you know. And so I thought that that was really, really exciting. Yeah. You know, so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for playing that. You know, you surprised oh, me. <laughs> but but uh, no, I mean, so so one thing that caught my attention that I wanted to highlight was that you talked about the different errors that have been going on throughout the years of data governance. And we're at a time now where uh, we're at the policy error. Right. Or or we, we just hit the pot, we just finished off the policy error, right? Because you're, you're saying that there's, there's um, you think that there believe, you believe that there's another error in place right now. And so you were talking about that on the Bright Talk uh, conversation uh, that I tuned into. And, and you also talked about that uh, just then, right? And, and in previous talks. So uh, what error do you believe specifically? I don't know if you, I know you mentioned it a little bit uh, earlier, but kind of highlight that a little bit more of what error now do you believe we're in and what are some examples? Because when I think about the policy error, I think about communicating the value of data governance internally to business users and leadership, right? I think about being able to um, to create, put policies in place and it becomes more of a, um, you're thinking about the goals, you're thinking about the people, the data inventory, the uh, data content management portion, and you're thinking about the business itself. You know, for every data system, you want to identify those data stewards. You know, who manage the data. You mentioned data stewards before, so who manage the data in place and the corporate assets and all that good stuff, right? To focus mm -hmm. on data quality. Um, so, so you mentioned just to go back to the question, uh, what era are we in now? Uh, are we in data? Data data uh, policy error? Are we in the policy error, or are we not? Or... Well, well I, I happen to believe this is just me that we're we're entering the post policy era, and, okay. and that doesn't mean that policies aren't important, right? I, I think if if you think back to what Winston Chen outlined, each each of those eras he talked about kind of built on each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, that enterprise processor era was really foundational, and and the policies helped allow people to use those repositories more effectively. But I, I, I do think data governance that really only concentrates on controls, right? Which, which I think is, is where that policy angle goes ultimately, unless you broaden it. I, I don't think that really is what will help people make the most of their data while, while still playing by the rules. And so that's why I think we're, we're post the policy era. I, I, I think of this, you know, I, I said in my article, it's the invention era, because I like that word invention. But, but, but to me, it, it's really about the focus on having data governance help users use the data to its fullest capability. I know one of the other books I read, uh, Laura Madsen's book, Disrupting Data Governance, mm. excellent book. And, and it's funny, I, I kept encountering people who were having the same thoughts I did, right? There's, there's various people I, I talked to and said, yeah, yeah, we really need to move into a new approach. And, and Laura really stresses that the primary thing data governance should focus on is getting the data out there. Mm. And, that, and that's different, right? Because it, it, previously we were so focused on controls, we sometimes were stopping the data from getting out entirely. 
That is a great point. That's a great point. <laughs> yeah. So, and what what good does that do, right? So, so again, and I, you know, I like Caroline and Peter's analogy of the rules. I mean, if if the rules are such that they stop you from playing the game entirely, then that's mm. no good for anybody. Yeah. So, so, so you have to look at it as the, the goal is to make the data useful, and and that means it has to be used in the right way, and you have to comply with regulations. But you you ultimately have to get the data to the people who need it. They have to understand it. They have to feel it meets their fit for use or fit for purpose or quality requirements, whatever they may be. And, and that's how you fuel, I think, invention, creativity, and all the other things I think you can do with data. So that's why I think we're, we're, we're moving out of the policy era into something different. I, I, I will coin my own phrase, but that's just me as the era of invention. But, but I, I think that is where you think, again, I, I wrote about this um, in my last article, you, you think of where what we're experiencing with COVID, and you and I were talking about the massive amounts of data. That, I mean, I don't think we've ever collected this much data. I think that was a Harvard Business Review article I quoted in my article said, never before has so much data been assembled so quickly. And, and it's really life or death. And, and as you said earlier, when we were talking, I mean, governments are making decisions based on data. And, and we're finding the data is not always reliable, right? And, and that's largely because there's not an overall governance around this data. It is always coming in and people are interpreting it differently. People have different definitions, different levels of quality. And, and so you, you, you see that, you see models with wide ranges of outcomes because of that. And, and I think that, that again, is, is a terrific example of where governance to me adds value by making that data more useful. Yeah, yeah. Now that's a great point, Randy, you know, and um, you know, some of the things you touched on are really insightful. I, I believe the audience, uh, whether they're new or people who have been in the data science or a data management industry, they can really take heed to that, you know. And um, I'm sure I, I need to go out and read some of the articles that you posted and some that's that's coming coming forward because you have me super excited about data governance in general, right? You know, I've been really focused on there's different pieces, as you you already know, there's different pieces to um, true data management, right? And people have different focuses in place throughout the time, whether they want to secure it, they want to make sure it's compliant, data governance, uh, or maybe just the ingest piece. Maybe they care about that. Maybe they care about mining it. Maybe they care about how does it, how is it accessible everywhere, right? Knowledge sharing and things like that. Um, you know, I've been more focused more on the analytical piece of things, you know, towards mm -hmm. the end when it's coming in, but something that you said that was, that really got me excited because I never thought about it, right? Don't, don't stop the data right from coming in you know, uh, um, is it's very valuable and um, it can be used in different ways something that i've learned is that you know sometimes you may have a, a huge excel spreadsheet and you may have different pieces of data that don't mean anything by itself but yeah. if you combine multiple multiple yeah. rows multiple columns whatever it is then you might come up with something viable at the end of the day you know so uh, I, I, I definitely thank you for that. And uh, as always, my audience knows that I usually leave with a, a nice little nugget at the end. Um, and and for what I've learned, you know, everybody here, they need to understand true data governance, right? As Randy was talking about, it's really that who, that what, that when, where, why, how of data management. And it's really all about how you handle the data collected within your business. And so that's important to understand for all organizations that they need to plan how they use data so it's handled consistently throughout their business. Um, and Randy, I don't know if you had anything to to drop on the audience at the end. Well, first, I, I agree with what you just said. And, and again, approaching that from a positive standpoint of it's important for people to understand how they can use data, how they should use data, but how they can use data. The, the other thing, I'm, I'm just thinking about this whole story I just relayed and 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 bringing a different viewpoint to a problem that was definitely mystifying me for a while, right? It made me think of a great teacher I had in college, but one of those music theory courses I actually did take, a wonderful man, Dr. James Sellers, he passed away recently. But, but I remember he said, if you run into something you can't solve, step back 
And and, yeah. and I thought, yeah, that is such good advice. Whatever you're doing, I, I think, especially in the world world of data, where we can sometimes get sucked in into that search for perfection, right? Where mm -hmm. we're trying trying to find that perfect data or make the thing work out perfectly. And 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 when we hit that level of frustration, step back, look at it in a different way, put some distance between you and your problem. And so I have to thank Dr. Sellers for that. No, that's an amazing point, right? And it's okay to step back and take it easy a little bit, right? Because you'll rack mm -hmm. your brain yes. and you'll, you'll, you will not solve the problem if you don't just take a step back, walk away from it, you know? Yes. Um, I've been told that in many scenarios, right? I mean, uh, when you when you have any type of problem in life, you know, sometimes it's just it's okay to take a step back, you know, clear your mind. Uh, so that's that's great, you know. Thank you for that, Randy. Um, and so as always, you know, thank you for listening to the Data Is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. And I am your host, Dapper Data. Randy, I just want to thank you so much for being on my uh, podcast. It has been an honor to host you on a podcast. And uh, thank you for that additional tidbit of information that you added in. And and please, you know, understand, audience, that you can tie data to anything. You can tie problem solving to anything. And uh, as you see, Randy was able to tie it to music that helped them understand how to better govern your data and help it be something that is really ingrained and embedded in his mind. Um, so as always, you can reach me at Mr. Dapper Data. That's at M R D A P P E R Data D A T A. Um, on any of the social media platforms and also keep an eye out for my website that's launching soon www.mrdapperdata.com and I'll also be speaking next week on August 25th at the AFCEA International Conference mm -hmm. so I'll be speaking about the challenges of telework there as well and uh, data governance is a big piece of that so definitely tune in um, and Randy you know where can they reach you out where can they reach you at well, you can reach me on LinkedIn. It's uh, Randall, Randy Gordon. You can find me there. And definitely look forward to comments and people just reaching out. Always interested to get people's thoughts. And, and thank you very much, Dapper Data. This was really fun. Really enjoyed and it. I appreciate it. And, and uh, also, definitely read some of the articles they posted out. Are they on LinkedIn as well? Yes, you can find them on LinkedIn. You can find them on my profile. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because I'm sure you have some insightful articles out there, um, especially based off of some of the things you talked about now. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to go read a couple of them uh, as soon as I get off of this so I can get some more insight uh, for the future and uh, forward thinking of uh, data governance. So thanks again, Randy. Um, and as always, you know, thank you, audience. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. With your host, Dapper Data.